my friends. Brett Patterson coming at you from the financial capital of the West, Salt Lake City, Utah. We're all in the same room today, which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yes, it no is. More, no more quarantined for me. Oh, good. I'm out. You're out. Of the quarantine. <laughs> We've got today the big fella, Brian Huntsaker. How you doing, Brett? Oh, living the dream. Good yeah. to see your face. Good to see you. And we have a special guest, a good friend, a real estate genius <laughs> yes we're gonna talk more about that rich day well brian yeah brian's the big guy i was i was waiting he said the big guy's like oh here we go like, let's do this and then of course I i'll lose call the, you the I, smart fella that's fine i lose the title to brian yeah he's the big fella good to have you here rich hey, brian, yeah. yeah thanks for coming in today for for everyone listening rich is a a great friend of brian and i and the one topic we're going to talk about today we we've never addressed in a podcast which is real estate investing and that is Rich's forte. Yeah, I, my background has always been in real estate. Actually, I started when I was uh, 21, uh, which was uh, a little more than 20 years ago now. You're old. <laughs> I'm an old, I'm an old uh, goat now. But um, So I started when I was 21. I actually started in the financial world. So I was doing um, lending and debt. Uh, back in the day, back when it was crazy, actually, the first the first um, loan that I actually did, the interest rate for the individual that I was helping out was uh, seven seven point eight percent. Times have changed. Times was have that, changed. Was that a thirty year? Or? A thirty year, yeah. Wow. And they wanted to reduce it, and we got them to six point five percent, and they were so happy. And I was like, "Let's go!" You know, six point five percent. And uh, and then through college, I. Um, I was doing uh, loans. I was doing mostly mortgages for residential homes and then uh, started getting into the commercial loan side after about uh, three or four years. And we had taken the brokerage from a brokerage to an actual bank where we were lending um, our own money and then we were selling it off in tranches. And that was pretty fun for me because that was back when, uh, and this makes me sound way old, but <laughs> this is back when all the guys in the office were running on DOS. And they introduced Windows. And for me, Windows was so intuitive. I was like, yeah, you just do this, click, click, click. And they were like, this guy's a genius. I'm all, yeah, buddy. Like, Because I don't have to hit tab to tab over to the different cells. Yeah. But anyway, so um, they, they put me in charge of um, wholesaling. So okay. I, was the, uh, I was over wholesaling. So I would put the, uh, the loans together and sell them to the bank. And then um, I got to a point where I felt like I needed to get to some more sophisticated real estate. And that's when I started, uh, through my MBA, I finished an MBA program. And I started working for a quasi-investment bank here locally um, that uh, does real estate. We would do institutional real estate. And I would work with independent broker-dealers, family offices, RIAs like yourselves. And I would, uh, basically, I was a wholesaler. So I would fly into Los Angeles and I would, excuse me, I'd fly into San Diego and drive up the coastline and stop at broker dealers offices and RIA's offices and say, hey, I'm here representing my sponsor, who the sponsor, we were a managing broker dealer at the time and we had, gosh, 19 sponsor clients. And I would go out with each of those sponsor clients and accompany them and make introductions to the relationships I had and would say, here's their product, here's what they're, they're looking to do and looking to um, uh, create in terms of their real estate. And then uh, it got to the point, and uh, I apologize if I'm rambling, I can, I can tell no, stories all day. I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> okay. Um, 
it got to the point where it got a little bit funny because as I was, a, I was the wholesaler for this managing broker dealer, the sponsors started having me raise money for the weirdest things. They were saying, Hey, we want you to raise money for uh, these boat slips. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I'm not excited about boat slips, <laughs> but uh, Depends maybe on where they're at, man. <laughs> Florida. They were, they yeah, were in Florida. I mean, it was fine. They were trying to. It was just. A, it, it felt like a stretch to me, mm. and uh, and so I actually um, left the broker dealer, the managing broker dealer, and went independent and started raising money for a group out of Philadelphia and uh, a group out of uh, Beverly Hills. And okay. so those were my those were my two main clients. And when then, did you do that? That was in two thousand and uh, gosh, uh, two thousand and six. Okay. Yeah, right before, the, right before the big the big crash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a good time. Yeah, that was great. Everybody, I mean, the two things you didn't want to do were real estate and private equity, and I was doing uh, private equity into real estate, so yeah, it was it was, like, so, yeah. <laughs> it was not good. So so since that time, uh-huh. you've transitioned from. From what you just talked about, the yep. wholesale, yep. to being independent, yep. to now doing your own real estate deals. That's right. Yep. Yeah. I, yeah. I, uh, there was a recognition here that there was an opportunity to do some really fun things. When and you say here in Utah? Here in Utah. Sorry. Okay. Well, and not just here in Utah, but just um, the partnerships that I had here in Utah. And uh, partnered with uh, a local builder, and, and he and I worked together on, he would build the projects, and I would go out and, and bring the money together, and we were partners on that, and uh, we we did, gosh, at one point, we had uh, about 3,500 apartments that we owned uh, together, and gosh, a, two or three million square feet of industrial space. Wow. So, yeah, we, we did uh, a well, lot. that was of, just with him? Uh, him, and then we, we brought in some other partners. Okay. Um, it was funny in the real estate world. It's it's kind of unique where you can have some loose partnerships with different groups, um, guys who specialize in one area or another. He was very specialized in uh, industrial, and and I was kind of seeing that there was a, a real opportunity in multifamily, especially in the West and and then here in Utah. So about four or five years ago, um, we started selling our assets in. Gosh, we had stuff in Texas, Arizona, Montana, uh, New Mexico. Actually, was a great market for us. Um, Oregon, huh. Washington, all, all basically all the western states except Nevada, which was not on purpose. It was just coincidental. Just didn't, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, anyway, um, we were doing a lot of uh, acquisitions in those times because it was such a good time to acquire things. You know, this was back when in 2000. Was this after, this was after the crash. Exactly. So 2011, 2012, um, we were able to buy stuff for significantly less than replacement value. And then we also had the benefit of high watermarks of rents. So like we would go into Tucson and recognize like, hey, gosh, you know, three years ago, these guys were paying $1,100 for rent in this specific apartment. Right now they're paying $800 and we're buying it at a cap rate based on $800. So we're buying it below replacement value at watermarks significantly below where they were paying three years ago. And we just felt like, man, this is an opportunity to to buy and kind of watch it grow. So you saw an opportunity in multifamily 2012? 2012. 2012. Yeah. <laughs> what, what would you attribute that to? You know, why Why do you think there was an opportunity there? I think I have an idea, but I, I'd yeah. like to hear your... I, I actually would love your input, too. Uh, what we saw um, and what I really personally recognized was 
Um, and I hate to say it, but you know, when people are going through those hard times, um, th- there wasn't a lot of places to go and rent a home. So they would, if they were having to leave a home or sell a home to liquidate or not in a great spot in that home and they had to vacate the home, they would then go into rental. They didn't want to necessarily go to, you know, the, the slums area. Mm-hmm. They wanted to rent a nicer place that they could go and, and regroup and regather and, and rebuild their lives. And so... We were seeing some, you know, good quality long-term tenants in really nice Class A off or uh, multifamily. Don't you think, uh, you know, the financial crisis and uh, the effects of that, uh, the builders? I mean, builders got hurt like incredibly yeah. hard during that time. Yeah, and there was just lack of, uh, oper- you know, lack of new building going on for several years. We yeah. underbuilt. And of course, people, you know, family formations kept going and people, you know, grow up and, you know, eventually want to have their own place. And and there was just really a shortage of good housing and also multifamily. Don't, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, that was that was the biggest thing, um, especially here in the West. A lot of people were um, hesitant to, to move into a multifamily situation because we didn't have anything really high end or, you know, kind of class A, especially here in Utah. Um, but, uh, you know, and I shouldn't say we had a few places. I know the Brigham apartments were a great place where people were really excited to live. And it was an exciting, nice place. Now, if you drive up, you know, four South in, in Salt Lake, there's apartments left and right, and they are beautiful. I mean, they're really nice places to live, nicer than, you know, a lot of the homes in a lot of the areas. And and so, you know, as this shift started to happen in 2000, uh, gosh, I would say 15, 16, I actually started to wonder. I, I still had a little PTSD <laughs> from 09 or 07, 08, 09. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's getting too frothy. It's getting – we're getting too built, overbuilt in that. And then – um, started to see a lot of transplants here in the in the state of Utah, and then I started doing a lot of research on the market here in Utah and Idaho mostly. And we started selling everything we had in Texas, Arizona, Montana. So we actually disposed of everything except for the one thing I haven't sold and can't sell, which is not true entirely. But I have a, a um, an assisted living facility in Southern California that. Uh, it's actually a great asset now, finally. It's been a long time. We started in 2011, and uh, finally to the point where it was, it's now cash flowing here. Money. Yeah, 10, 10, 11 years later. And that huh. was kind of the, hey, everybody, all you know, people. I remember the, at that time. Yeah, everyone was talking everyone about Everyone was doing that. Yep. Oh, the baby boomers, and yep. they're all going to need assisted living. And, and then now people have kind of transitioned more into the home. And, and, and again, not everybody, and, and a lot of people have done great. I think that was the challenge is we kind of got a little bit out of my wheelhouse, um, and as I said, it's been a great investment, um, and it, it will be a great investment long term. But um, a little more, little more patient than you normally like. A little more patient than I normally yeah. like. Yeah, and and the rea- the reality is, is um, you know, to Brian's question, is I, I think people started to let go of the idea that I have to own this house, and and I have to own this much yard, and I have to own you know, the, the white picket fence and stuff. And I think people had kind of started separating themselves, especially this younger generation where they feel like, listen, I'd rather have a nice car than a giant mortgage payment. I'd rather have a, a nice car, uh, a gym pass and, uh, you know, a place where I can go out and mingle and not have to worry about that. Hey, if my toilet broke is broken, I've got to go to Home Depot and figure out how to do, you know, replace a toilet. That's a great point. I think there's a, a, 
um, thought process out there that owning a home, you have to own it to be a wise investment. And that's not necessarily true. No. Because buying a home isn't really an investment. No, it's not. <laughs> Unless you're flipping it, which right. we'll get to. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with renting. No. No, there's nothing wrong with it. It's funny, actually, as I worked with a lot of institutional investors out of the state of Utah, um, when they would look at investing into U- into Utah, they would say, why, does, why is this you know, um, plumbing manufacturer own his own building? And um, I mean, my argument is, I, I actually, I have no argument. I have no idea why they're in. He says, look, if he's making 30 40% in his plumbing manufacturing company, why is he only making eight or nine percent in real estate? He should sell that to somebody that wants to invest in real estate, put that money back into the business, grow that business, where his money, where he's getting a better return. And yep. I, again, I can't argue that. Yep. That's that's good investing. Now, yep. if someone wants to own their own building because they say, "Hey, I own my own building," that's great. More power to them. Yeah. All right. So tell me this. I've got a, I've got a list of questions. Brian does too for you. Okay. But rich day as a whole. Yeah. I think you're probably of all the people I know. You're the most credible in the real estate world, <laughs> but you've moved a lot of, I mean, you've, you've had a lot of assets. You've moved a lot uh-huh. of assets. Yep. Do you have like a total number or can you give me a summary of, of what you've done since you've been in the industry? Oh gosh. Does that make sense? Yeah. That question? Yeah. You know, when I originally started in the wholesaling side, um, the primary focus, because that was kind of my career was, you know, how much equity have you raised? Yeah. And, and it's never, it's funny because you, you, people have different benchmarks and, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, people have different benchmarks of uh, what they've done or what they've accomplished. And so for me, it was always an equity, uh, mm-hmm. an equity lug. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, gosh, when we were in 2006, um, me and one other uh, individual, we were out in the market and raising money and uh, we raised $525 million in one year. Wow. Between the two of us. Now, that was for our 19 sponsor clients, but that was a crazy time where, you know, we would put out, and this is back when we would receive subscription documents over fax and it wasn't over email. So we had specific, you know, times where you could introduce the investment and then you had to wait a week and they had due diligence and then you had to wait three days yep. before you could accept subdocs. And uh, anyway, we, on the day we'd start accepting subdocs, we'd sell out a you know, a $30 million project in eight minutes, just as fast as the fax machine Jeez. could print. That's how fast the subdocs would come. And so people would wait until the exact 8 a.m. mountain time. I'm going to hit send. And they would call me like, I'm getting a busy signal. I'm getting a busy signal. Anyway, so your question <laughs> about what I've uh, actually done, it depends on what you're measuring. So if it's equity, I don't actually have an exact number right now, but it's over a billion dollars in equity raised. Total asset values, gosh, got to be over $5 billion. Um, right now, under construction, I've got about 1,000 apartment units and about uh, 200 townhomes and about a million square feet of industrial, and I just put a couple more under contract. <laughs> so I asked that so that people listening will realize that we just didn't find you at Burger King. Like this yes. guy's been there, yes. done that. Coldwell Banker. Yes, no. <laughs> and and knows what he's talking about. So a couple well, okay, I, couple questions. For Brett, you. I would ask, I would just yeah. add one thing. Both Brett and I have known Rich for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Yeah. You know, we, we yeah. can, there's some, a lot of credibility there with, uh, <laughs> you know, Rich, he's a, he's a good, good man. Good dude. When, Thank you. when you're talking about trust. Right. Yep. There's a reason why he's here. Yeah. 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 And, and candidly, you know, and 
full transparency is important. A few of our clients actually work with you as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, question for you. Yes. Just real estate as a whole. Yeah. You're, you've got all these apartments and, and a million a million feet of warehouse space, you yeah, said. Industrial. Industrial. Yeah. Industrial, industrial flex. Um, what makes, when you're looking at a real estate deal, what makes a good real estate deal for you? Oh gosh, for me, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's similar to the way you guys, I, I, and I can't, you guys know stock market way better than I do, but I probably similarly, um, where you look at a stock and say, Hey, this is, this is undervalued. Um, there's a lot of things that show that this could be a, a great project that someone just needs to put a little bit of, you know, elbow grease into it. And, and, and I know real estate's different because I can affect a real estate project unlike, you know, an investment you, you might make in, you know, Amazon or whatever. But um, but for me, when I look at a deal, uh, it's it's got to be on the buy. You got to be able to buy it well. And if you're buying something at market value um, and then trying to turn it into something, hoping the market's going to go up, that's a little bit of a scary situation. Um, for me, I look at it and say, okay, if I'm going to buy this piece of land um, and I know where rents are now, if rents come down 10%, does this project still hold water? Is it still a viable investment? And so you stress test it. You say, okay, say the market, say interest rates go up a percent. Say, um, you know, vacancy goes up. Say cost of construction goes up. What does this project look like? And if you can, if you stress it with three or four different things, and by stress number four, it still looks okay, um, and okay meaning it produces a decent return to the investor, then um, then we'll we'll move forward. And so um, for me, again, it comes back to how much can you stress this based on what we know now, not on what we can guess is going to happen in the future. So it's the price at which you pay. It's the value. And Brian, this relates to, I mean, this this works in the stock market as well. This is how we look for stocks. Yeah, we call it margin of safety. Yep. And you do, when I listen to you describe, you know, what you're doing, I'm thinking, well, that's exactly what we do when we buy a company. We come up with what we think is fair value. We calculate what the business is worth, and then we try to buy at a a 20% discount to its intrinsic value. And that's kind of what you're doing in, yeah. a, in a different way, but in the real estate industry. And that's our way of stress testing our business. You know, because, you know, business, we could have a business downturn. Yeah. And uh, we want to buy at a discount. And then the other things we do, and we're not here to talk about what we do, but <laughs> is, you know, we look for quality. I, I, I guess I would, add, that would be the thing I would ask you or, you know, how do you, is that something you consider as far as when you invest in a project or is Ab- it just price? Absolutely. No, quality is a big part of it for me. Um, you know, there's things you, you kind of want to stay away from. I, I'm kind of a, <laughs> I say a boring um, devel- developer, syndicator, whatever, because I don't, I don't do the, I mean, I, you know, you guys both know me, my passion, I love to golf. Um, I will never own a golf course, ever. It, it, you can, it doesn't matter how good that looks. <laughs> I can't do it because emotionally I would want to do it. And so for me, it's bad. The same way I personally will never do a, uh, a resort. I won't invest in a resort. I won't start a resort. I won't develop a resort. I won't do, um, 
Gosh, I don't, I'm not a big fan of retail. I never have been. Um, I, I, I have done, I did do a Starbucks because it was a single tenant, uh, you know, good quality <laughs> national, or actually, I guess, worldwide tenant. Yeah. Um, so I knew I was pretty safe there. And then as soon as it was built and leased, I sold it. <laughs> I was, I just didn't, it was not something I wanted to do for a long term. So I'm, I'm which has saved you through this coronavirus. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. That's your way of, of filtering out. You know, we try to filter out businesses, bad businesses. Yeah. You know, that's your way of saying, I'm not interested in these type of business. There's a lot of businesses out there that we're not interested in investing in. Yeah. Because we just don't like the industry. We, right. don't, exactly. we don't like the, you know. The ebbs looking, and flows. Right. The ebbs yeah. and flows or the future trajectory of that particular yeah. industry or business. Yeah. And you you do the same kind of thing. Yeah. I've got like. good friends that have done really well in in hos- in um, in uh, hotels, hospitality. Um, I've not, I've never really, I've raised money when I was raising money, uh, back in the day, I would raise money for hotels. Um, me personally, I just, I just, maybe I'm just not that smart. <laughs> I just can't, I can't look at a hotel and go, this is going to be amazing. One thing I don't understand. And again, I, I don't even take the time to understand it is office space. Um, the only reason I've ever done an office space was because, um, a friend owns the land and says, I want to make this into something, and we make it into something. But for me, I, if it was up to me, I would I would uh, build it, lease it up, and get rid of it. <laughs> See, that's interesting because you, you think about coronavirus. Yep. And, you know, that has just been really difficult in office space for, yeah. in a lot of different areas. And, uh, you know, we look at, you know, business when we invest into businesses, we're looking for businesses that have the future looks bright, and, and you know, here's an, an area or space that, is a little bit iffy, you know. Yeah. Is there remote work and technology? And yeah. I think there's going to be long-term pressure on office space possibly. Absolutely. And that's one of the things, like, as I'm looking back at Utah, right? So, as I said, you know, five or six years ago, I had kind of an epiphany. Um, and it was more of a – it was kind of a almost a confirmation bias where my uh, brother-in-law had bought a house. And in my mind, I knew how much that house cost. And I was looking at it, and she's showing it off and really excited about it. And I was like, this is amazing. And, you know, he's well-employed and, and makes good money. And and they told me how much he paid for it, and I almost fell down. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How much did you pay for this house? And all of a sudden, I was like, all these things that I've been researching and reading, I was like, it's happening here in Utah. We're, we're going to see a huge... Uh, increase in in population and demand and right now um, the state is about 55,000 households uh, short of demand and so it's almost as if we can't build enough and I don't want to say that because we can get too far ahead of ourselves but we know that the population in Utah is going to grow we know the population in Idaho is going to grow and actually the coronavirus situation has actually accelerated that growth even more than we were planning. Um, I think early estimates were a doubling of the population here in the state in, you know, 35 to 40 years. Actually, it was I think it was 40 to 50 years, and I think now it's closer to 35 to 40 because you have such a, an acceleration of population transplant. And so, in 2016, that's when I was like, oh my gosh! I read that Utah had the largest. Um, Let's see, for the first time since the Great Depression, the population increase in the state of Utah outpaced the birth rate increase. 
Wow. So in 2000, and there's a lot of babies. In there's the state. a lot of babies <laughs> in the state. So in 2016, you had more people transplant population growth than you had birth rate growth, and that wow. was uh, yeah. And, and I wish I could find that article again. I just remember going, "Oh my gosh, it's so, happening!" So so people that listen to this podcast that live in the East Coast and in the Midwest, they might be thinking to themselves, "Why in the world would I ever want real estate in Utah, Idaho?" Arizona, I don't know where else is hot right now that you're doing or where your deals are, but why would they want real estate in those areas? Is it because of what you're saying, the population increase? Population increase. um, Yeah, not only that, but you have opportunity here as well. You've got a lot of infrastructure. We've got some great colleges that overemphasize entrepreneurship. You know, some of my my friends that I I play golf with (laughs) um, are big tech guys, Mm -hmm. um, and they've brought an enormous amount of tech business to the state of Utah. Um, uh, one of my good friends sold his business, it was Omniture, and he sold that to Adobe. And that was kind of the catalyst to say, hey, look, you know, Utah can be a high-tech state. And then you start looking at what BYU has done, what the University of Utah has yeah. done, what Utah State has done in terms of pushing entrepreneurship into, it, it's shocking to me actually, um, and I talk about it with friends here in the state, how much uh, money and innovation and growth has come out of Logan, Utah. It's wild. Like, it's bananas how much has come out of Utah. Rich is saying that for my effect. Here. <laughs> <laughs> thanks but, but thanks for mentioning but it's Utah true. State. It's true. It's true. It, it's actually it's surprising. I think I think if you look at BYU, you kind of have your you know your usual suspects. Utah, you, you know a few people. Yeah. Um, and Utah State, it's just like by way of – anyway, again, I'm not here to promote it's being an Aggie. It's the culture. It's yeah. crazy. But the state is – the state's awesome, and, the, and, and that's happening in Idaho as well. So when people invest in real estate, and if we had any clients inquire of us about real estate, I think the number one thing that comes up to me in my mind as to why is the income. Would you say that's true to produce a certain amount of income in a world where there's 0% interest rates and fixed income? I mean, it just sucks. Yeah. Is that why people invest in real estate mainly? You know, real estate has a few benefits to it. Um, first of all, you have the income stream, which is really important. Second to that, you also have depreciation. So if you, in an asset like real estate, where you can take an apartment project and you can do what's called cost segregation, and you segregate the cost from the building, say, for example, you can depreciate the lighting package faster than you can depreciate the, uh, I don't know, the, the flooring uh, you can depreciate the uh, the HVAC faster. And so you get some tax benefits. So not only do you have the income stream, but you get the tax benefit. And then uh, you also have uh, principal reduction. So every month as you make your mortgage payment in terms of a big mm-hmm. apartment project, you're reducing the principal that you owe on that, on that apartment building. So you're reducing your basis there, which is also a cash flow that you're not capturing. But it's almost saved for you. It's kind of like, you know, the forced savings of, uh, you know, some other programs that are there. And then finally, you have the, the benefit and the, kind of the one everyone crossed their fingers for, which is appreciation of the value of the building. So they're, they're getting that income, potential capital appreciation, tax benefits that you're talking about. And principal reduction. And principal reduction. And, and the tax benefits really are when you get you receive that income not all of that income is taxable a portion Correct. a portion of it would be return of basically return of capital or is depreciated away yeah really. yeah and there's a difference between uh investing in a bond versus investing direct into real estate now a bond it's kind of you know 
um, it's bonds are more investing into that business, right? You're investing into whoever is the sponsor of that bond. You're investing in their due diligence, their uh, understanding of the market, what they're going to. And you're saying, here's a hundred thousand dollars. Now I'm going to trust that you hit these uh, objectives in your bond, in your bond. And it's spread over, you know, uh, 10, 20, 50, hundred projects. And so your risk of capital loss is pretty low. Um, but your risk or your your upside benefit is is also capped. Um, where direct investments, it's a more risky investment. Um, you but you invest direct into that real estate. And so at the end of the year, in, in the deals that I've done, uh, my investors are actually owners in the LLC. We we form a single purpose entity. That single purpose entity has um, its own structure, and then depending on the person's investment in that, if they invest. 10% of the equity that's in there, they own 10% of that project. And so they get to uh, depreciate 10%. They get the cash flow, 10% of the cash flow, everything that goes along with it, they own. And the appreciation. And the appreciation. So they get a K1 at the end of the year. Um, and uh, it's a, so it's a little bit different than just investing in a bond. And that appreciation is not realized until you sell the project. Exactly. Right. Yep, that's exactly right. And then that's the other nice benefit. Um is the 1031 exchange is in a bond when an asset sells you don't have that benefit to do a 1031 exchange and then and the, that's a tax code 1031 to where you can actually invest in a like kind exchange so you can sell uh i've done i just did one um in december where we sold a piece of property and i put that money with an, an accommodator is what it's called and that accommodator is someone because once you take possession of that money you got to pay tax on it mm -hmm. so you put it with a qualified intermediary or uh, an accommodator and then i identify other properties to invest in so the the profit that was realized on the on the asset that we sold is deferred um and until i you know actually sell out of those other assets well into the future how much how much time do you have before you had Actually, you say you identify projects. Uh -huh. Actually, the money actually goes into those projects. Yeah, so you have 45 days to identify, and then you've got 180 days, and that's and and these are very basic because um, there's some other nuances, and uh, and I'm not a, a tax accountant, <laughs> and so it would be difficult for me to give any tax advice. But you have 45 days to identify, and then you have 100, 180 days to place that money. So, for okay. example, um, I can identify you know three different properties and say. One of these is going to close, and this is where I want to put my money. And at the end of the day, if you decide, you know what, I'm not going to put my money in that asset, you can actually receive your money at that point, 45 days later, and then you just pay tax on it. Yeah. So I know time is limited. Um, we've got we've got a few minutes. I've got a couple questions for you. Let's go. But I love a couple things you said. <laughs> you said you're boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? We consider ourselves boring too yeah. because we're value investors. And I think that's similar to how you approach the real estate market. You're yeah. looking for value. You stress test the properties, the yeah. margin of safety, and you only you only deal with things that you're comfortable with within right. your circle of competence. Yep. Uh, you said you didn't understand hotels. Mm -hmm. You're not smart enough. I love that. <laughs> I love that comment. People will reach out to Brian and I and be like, well, look at this tech stock. Well, what do they do? Well, they are up and coming for the electric vehicle market in this space. We're like, we have no idea what you even said. No. So we're not touching it. Yeah. So I love that about that, you. That's our number one rule in our investment philosophy is do you, we ask ourselves, do we understand the business? Yeah. And 
you know, clearly you said, you know, I'm not sure I understand real, you know, uh, retail. Yeah. Or I don't, maybe don't understand. The uh, office. Office space. Yeah. You know, there, and there's probably, there are people out there that are very successful in office and, and retail. And I'm saying, that's great, but that's just not our space. And I think it's, sometimes it's really important to realize, like Brett said, where's your circle of competence yep. and stay in that circle. That's, that's how you create success. Absolutely. There, there's no guarantees. And past performance is indicative of um, being compliant. But boring <laughs> over time seems to compound wealth. Yeah. Oh, I can't. Nothing argue. wrong with that. I can't argue that. Yeah, yeah I think, I think having a nice uh, cash flow stream where you know, um, and, and the way we, you know the, my investments and stuff that, that's happened is, it, it's really like I said, it's just mailbox money. Where, um, you know, as as the property performs, you get your check in the mail, and you don't have to really think yeah. about it. Which is different than someone that's you know, uh, flipping a home, for example. If they decide, hey, I want to invest in real estate. Um, but, um, I don't want to just give my money to someone else. I'm going to, I'm going to flip this home. Um, great. You know, there's, uh, you gotta, you gotta value your time. <laughs> so, to that. so this is one question I, I get all the time okay. from people is they, they get, I don't know if they get antsy, mm-hmm. but clients will call me and say, Hey, I want to take out two, three, four hundred thousand dollars Cause I'm going to start flipping homes. Yeah. Advice for them. <laughs> Um, don't do it. Oh man. (laughs) Here's the thing. If that's your passion, if you are really passionate about home remodel and home repair, absolutely go, go crazy, you know, do your thing. But if you're trying to do it to be a, um, uh, I don't know, a a wealth generator, it's, you're gonna, it's, it's the equivalent of me going to Robin hood, right. And downloading and saying, Hey, I'm going to take two or 300,000 and I'm going to invest in that up and coming tech stock that's got solar panel airplane wings and a <laughs> submarine you know stuff I want this stock <laughs> I'm looking into it I'll let you know yeah. but uh, it, that's the equivalent is it look yeah. I'm going to do this on my own. and you know what some of those will hit some of those you'll make a lot of money on others you're going you're going to get beat up on you know bad what? it's dangerous when they hit because these people think they're geniuses yeah, that's and they're exactly going right. to keep doing it yeah it's so addictive. Uh, if somebody's interested in the real estate market, at least our clients, um, I would tend to to vet what they're after and say, talk to someone like Rich. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and to your point, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I've, I mean, I've invested with other people. Um, somebody says, hey, I've got this long-term stay hotel up in uh, Washington, and I, and more than anything, it, it, I trust them. And I know that, look, if yeah. this deal goes bad, it's not because they've done something wrong. It's outside market circumstances, you know. Um, and so I trust them, and I trust that they'll, they'll be great fiduciaries of my money. And if, if it goes, like I said, if it goes bad, I recognize that it's not because of something they've done necessarily. Um, although there is the opposite of that, that it sometimes does happen. Yeah. But, um, but uh, people like that that are more sophisticated in hotels and office. I've, I've invested a little bit of money, um, mostly just one long-term stay hotel because that made more sense to me. (laughs) But, but like Brian said, there's guys in the office market, especially here in Utah that I admire and respect and they do a heck of a job on office. And, um, I've, I'm just not that sophisticated. Yeah. There's, there's a saying out there. If you don't know jewelry, you better know your jeweler or trust your jeweler. I like right? that. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great analogy. So your investments are in singular projects, not yes. a fund. Correct. What's the advantage of investing in singular projects and not a fund? 
Um, I think uh, a little bit of what we talked about before where you actually get to benefit from the upside of that specific deal. So um, if a project is, is cash flowing, you get your cash flow from that, you get that depreciation, you get the K-1s, and so you get to appreciate. Now, when it comes to selling, you can say, hey, I'm going to take my cash and pay my taxes and move on and start flipping homes <laughs> or, <laughs> or, not. Or, or you can say or trading GameStop or trading, <laughs> trading GameStop on Robinhood or, but on a direct investment you can also say hey I'm going to roll forward um, with my partnership here and we're going to go we're going to repeat what we've done in this deal and do it in another and and again coming back to you know I don't want to get in compliance issue but I've had that happen in a very positive way where we did one deal in Bozeman Montana we rolled out those funds into um, a project in New Mexico and Albuquerque, and then we end up selling that one. And then we actually did make, we just paid everyone their money because it was getting to be a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, that was market circumstances. We benefited a lot. And so it's not how it always works every time exactly, but it's, uh, um, but it's an, uh, an example of how you can roll forward and compound the money you make and, and roll it forward into other deals. Yeah. It seems to me to be safer actually to invest in projects one or two or three yeah you, versus going into a fund yeah you get to pick like for example i have a, a couple of investors that said hey listen i don't know anything about the uh you know uh, i have a, a big project in west valley i don't know anything about west valley i don't know the first thing to start i trust you however like right now i'm going to hold on to some cash and wait for your next deal because i just don't know about the west valley market yeah. i want to wait and see if you did you know your next projects in how it goes yeah in in you know salt lake city or i'm from idaho i want to wait and see if you do a deal in idaho so i'm not going to put money in that one so you have that uh, that option yeah. whereas the fund you send your money to the fund and you're like all right guys get to work yep it's similar to why we would buy, buy individual stocks versus S&P 500 index funds. We're, n we're not fund investors no. generally. We, yeah, we like no. to target our investments Absolutely. to our best ideas. Yeah. And that's what you're doing. That's yep. exactly it. Yeah, just in real estate. <laughs> so, so average income, and I know this varies, and, and folks, you know, past performance, again, is not yeah. indicative of future returns, but average income – uh, you know, income return. Yeah. So on a project for what I do in, in terms of development, especially in acquisition, let's use acquisition. For example, if I acquire a project with investors, I, I invest in that project personally as well. Um, I, as the sponsor, don't take any of the upside until my investors get at least an 8% preferred return. And that's annually. So they get an 8% annual return uh, before I participate in any of the, of the, profit share of the upside of that, except for the way that my money, my money participates parapasu, which is side by side with everyone else. But I don't get any added benefit from sponsoring from, you know, structuring the deal, putting the deal together, signing on the loan docs, guaranteeing those loans. I don't take any of that profit share um, or participate in the upside until investors get at least 8%. At least the 8%. And, and everything, you know, and again, we've benefited a lot from the market over the last eight years, the way it's grown. And, and I feel like we've been pretty smart and sophisticated in the way we've approached things. And at the same time, um, we have been, you know, very strategic. And so um, we're seeing anywhere, you know, internal rates of return of anywhere between 18 and, I mean, I don't want to say the high side because it's high, <laughs> uh, but those are, those, are, <laughs> those are extenuating circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. But the, from, let's just say 18% to really good. To, to really good. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, past performance is not indicative of future returns. No. Um, if... If, a, if one of our clients or anybody listening wants to work with Rich Day, because you got a lot of cool projects coming up. Yeah. Because we talk all the time. Yeah. 
Um, what what does an investor have to do to work with you or have to be? Yeah, like? I you know as a person I'm very in, in inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> as a sponsor I cannot be. I I have to be pretty strict on who can invest. And so an individual uh, who wants to invest has to be an accredited investor, which means they have to have a net worth of a million dollars or more, or um, have to have an income of $250,000 a year, two years consecutive. So that qualifies someone as an accredited investor. Yeah. If, if, if you don't meet those criteria, um, man, I, you know, it, it's just because of the way we're structured, we do it as a reg D filing, which is a, um, you know, it's a securities filing or it's a, it's a, finally, you don't have to secure or, or register with the SEC as a Reg D. And so um, it's all done through a, in, through a private placement memorandum, which is kind of like a prospectus. And again, you have to qualify that way. But once you qualify that way, I'd love to talk. Is that and or or? Or. It's or. Yeah, $250,000 or a million dollar net worth. Just what you said. Okay. Yeah. So if, if, if folks out there listening are interested in in real estate as part of their portfolio, we can have that conversation. And if it, if it, if it's something that will benefit you, then I would, I would make an introduction to yeah. Rich. Great. Does that work? Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Um, I know we're right against the clock. Yeah. Thanks for coming in today. Are you Rich. kidding me? Yeah, I, I feel like that went too way too fast. We need to do part two. Yeah, we do. And <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, and I really mean this. Uh, and, and I know you too, you do too, Brian. Uh, we've known Rich for a long time, and there's very few people in the real estate because there's so many people in real estate. There's a lot of us. <laughs> there's a lot of us too, right? There are there's a lot people, of us, yeah, um, yeah. That it's important to find somebody you trust. And and I, I trust this fellow right here. Thank yeah. you. Same Thanks, guys. Real estate fellow. You guys Thanks for awesome. coming in. Yeah, of course. Thank All you. Right. Thanks, Until Rich. Thanks, next absolutely. time. This is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique, and the topics discussed on this broadcast should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Specific financial securities discussed are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation and should not be considered recommendations. This is for educational purposes only. For more information, please contact Iron Gate Global Advisors at info at or by calling 888 5910334